Lord, we pray that as we come to reflect on your words to us in Scripture, we may seek to learn that very hard lesson for ourselves, for our lives, and for our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'll know by now that this is the first Sunday in a new Methodist year, even if you didn't know it before you came here this morning. But in spite of some people still being away on holiday, it does have about it today the feeling of a day of new beginnings. But you might think that the gospel passage which the lectionary has served up for us today is not perhaps the most encouraging or stimulating reading with which to start off a new year. In fact, you could even say that it's a bit of a PR nightmare for the church. Just imagine, would ours or any other church website invite people to join us with these words of Jesus? If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Well, it's perhaps the thought of denying ourselves that would most put off contemporary seekers or inquirers after Jesus. In a postmodern age in which we live, what fulfills me, what resonates with me, what fits my worldview, is possibly worth thinking about and pursuing. But what doesn't can be dismissed or ignored. But that, I don't think, is how the hearers or the readers in Matthew's church would have taken these words in the gospel. For them, the cross, far from being a bland, though readily recognized symbol of Christian faith, as it is for us, would have focused their minds and then frozen them in fear at hearing Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me. For them, it was the equivalent of embracing the gallows or the electric chair, a gruesome and tasteless symbol of brutal death. So you can perhaps understand why the first followers of Jesus in those early years and decades chose a fish rather than a cross as a mark of Christian identification. So given this kind of reaction to this invitation of Jesus, both now and then, why did Jesus speak about discipleship in these terms? Why was there a need for disciples to follow a path of self-denial, suffering, and even painful death? Well, I suppose the shortish answer goes a little bit like this. Jesus knew that the way of the cross was the inevitable outcome of his life and ministry, much as we heard to the anger and bewilderment of at least one of his disciples, Peter. The popular view and expectation of the Messiah 
which a few verses earlier Peter had claimed Jesus to be, was that the Messiah would lead a popular nationalistic uprising, head up an army of faithful supporters, drive out Israel's enemies from the land, and establish the reign of God in perfect peace and prosperity. But Jesus didn't see his messiahship like that at all. In fact, he saw it very differently. Jesus saw that he had to fulfill Israel's God-given task of bringing salvation to all peoples. And the only way that he was going to achieve that was by modeling his messiahship on the suffering servant depicted in Isaiah, a figure representative of the nation of Israel as a whole. In this way, and in this way alone, Jesus knew that he would fulfill the purpose of his coming to earth. In this way, and in this way alone, he would overcome sin, evil, and death by going through suffering and death itself. Only in that way could he bring in the future rule of God's kingdom. The final words of the passage speak of the coming, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. These are not a reference, as many believe, to the second coming, but to Jesus being victorious and vindicated in his suffering and death by God's raising him from the dead to resurrection life. And so if self-denial, suffering and death are features of establishing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, and what applies to Jesus also applies to his followers. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. But 2,000 years on, at the start of a new church year, that still leaves us with a distinct problem. A problem not only for those we want to bring into the life of the church, but a problem also for us who may have joined a long time ago or have been part of the fabric of the church for the whole of our lives. We didn't think that the life of the church was anything to do with what Jesus seems to be saying here to the disciples And nor, for that matter, does Peter, the rock, as Jesus called him a few verses earlier, on which I will build my church. But then was Jesus really intent on building a church as we know it? Or did he hope that the church built on the rock called Peter might be somewhat different? Perhaps less of an institution and more of a movement. Perhaps less about being served, but more about serving. Perhaps less about dispensing earthly power and social control, and more about living by the power of God, reflected in the crucified Christ, but seen by the world as God's weakness, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if we think Jesus really did intend the church to be as it is now, 
then let's remember on this first Sunday of a new Methodist year that John Wesley never wanted to found the Methodist Church as we know it. But rather, he created a dynamic, life-transforming, nation-changing movement with a following of people nicknamed Methodists. It's as though Jesus and the church often take us in opposite directions, requiring us to make a choice about which way to take. Is it following a person or is it belonging to an institution? Is it about undertaking an uncertain journey with Jesus into uncharted territory or is it staying in a building that we have known and loved for a long time? Are we a people open to change and growth, which is what a journey with Jesus will certainly give us? Or are we intent on keeping things exactly as they are for fear of losing that which has become most precious to us? Are we pioneers for the kingdom of God? Or are we keepers of the tradition of the church? I don't believe that these questions and others like them are anything new. I've lived with the tension brought about by those questions all my ministry, as my colleagues will have too. And church history shows that the church has lived with the same tension ever since Emperor Constantine declared in the early 4th century that Christianity was now the state religion of the Roman Empire. But for all of us, and for the church in every age, it's literally vital to face up to such questions and to hear Jesus out, something that Peter wasn't at first prepared to do. And the reason is because Jesus is talking about life. He's talking about the essence of life. He's talking about true life. He's talking about fulfilled life. He's talking about the life of the kingdom of God, which is why he goes on to say this. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Church history bears out what Jesus says here. Ever since the second century theologian Tertullian uttered those oft-quoted remarks that the seed of the church is sown in the blood of the martyrs, a noticeable pattern has emerged. Where the church does take up the cross and follow Jesus, a dynamic is often generated that brings about inexplicable growth and life, spiritually and often numerically too. Think of the church in those countries that once practiced state suppression of religion, such as Russia and China, to see how what had almost been crushed out of existence has burst again into vibrant and glorious life. And even where taking up the cross doesn't necessarily entail persecution, suffering and death, sacrificial living in the manner of Jesus produces unexpected outcomes in the lives of individual disciples and churches. 
it has to be recognized that the teaching of Jesus here is both countercultural in that it runs against the self-preoccupied way of life of much of our culture, and also it's counterintuitive in that it goes against the grain of our natural instincts to preserve life and seek the best we possibly can for a comfortable and happy life for ourselves. But then, isn't so much of God's revelation to the world both countercultural and counterintuitive? Isn't that the very nature of what the kingdom of God is all about? So what is our response to be, both as individuals and as church, as we set out on a new Methodist year? Well, let me say initially what the response shouldn't be. It shouldn't be either dismissing or ignoring what Jesus says here simply because it makes uncomfortable listening or reading for us. And nor should it be a leap to the other extreme whereby we seek to bring suffering upon ourselves in some kind of misguided, masochistic manner. Instead, let me offer just three principles. There could be more which we as individual disciples and as church might seek to adopt in the coming year. Firstly, let's seek to let go of that tight control that we like to exercise over our lives and sometimes, if we're honest, over the church and allow Jesus to have more influence in both by allowing Jesus to direct the way that we take. Secondly, let's recognize that a safety-first approach isn't necessarily a prime Christian virtue in all matters relating to the church and the kingdom. Let's remember Jesus calls us on a journey with him, and the fact that we can't be sure of the way ahead or certain of the destination, or even what's going to happen around the next corner isn't good enough reason for staying put and not taking steps of faith for the kingdom of God. And thirdly, let's rediscover the power of sacrificial living, which in the providence of God has that inexplicable capacity to change lives and transform situations, sometimes quite beyond our imagining or our expectations. How you and I and we as church respond to the challenge of Jesus to take up your cross will in fact either help or hinder the life and growth of God's kingdom. If we have the courage and the faith to follow Jesus on the journey that leads to the cross, then we will find our true selves. We will discover life, his life, the life of the kingdom, becoming real and vital in us, in our church, and in the world around us. And we can make a start today, the first Sunday of a new year, this day of new beginnings. Amen.